Blog Talk Radio. Once again, to put your mind on spin cycle in the laundromat of your mind and enter the world of John St. Germain in the Crystal Silence League hour. Yes, let the socks tumble with the underwear and the underwear tumble with the t-shirts as your thoughts go round and round and round and round and round in the underwear cycle of your mind. Just put a few quarters in, put it on hold. Remove your laundry from the washer and put it in the dryer. And you know what happens then? You always lose a sock. Come back in just a minute. And we shall return with our show tonight, which is evidence of the afterlife. Tonight, we'll talk about reincarnation. And if we have time, near-death experiences. If we don't have time, we'll pick up that topic next week. Because we have all the time in the world. Round and round and round and round and round and round and round. And welcome this week to the Crystal Silence League Hour, episode 144. I always get excited as we approach like 145, 150, 155, 160. You know, every five episode increments as we count upward. And um, at this point, I believe we are the second longest running show on the LMC radio network next to the legendary Lucky Mojo Root Work Hour, um, which has been running for several years now. Uh, I don't even—they don't even number their episodes. I don't even know what episode number they're on. They've been running for years and years and years and years. So I don't even know. I don't even know how many episodes they've been going out. Their shows are archived, like mine, mine are. I guess you can go back into the archives and. Listen to them. Uh, we're going to archive all the shows on LMC Radio Network at some point on our uh, LMC forum, which you can find on the internet. If you do, go to the Lucky Mojo Curio Company website, you can see a link to the forum. And there's lots and lots and lots of topics there concerning root work and hoodoo uh, practice. And uh, there's a uh, section of that form dedicated to the LMC Radio Network, and you can find all the Crystal Silence League episodes archived there, links to the archives anyway, with a description of every show, and we're intending to do that with all of our radio shows eventually. Everything in due time. 
And for those of you who are new to this, um, the LMC uh, network is a loosely allied series of radio shows that come and go. Um, it's difficult to maintain a weekly radio show, um, so we have varying topics. People come and go. And uh, the Crystal Silence League Hour uh, is a resource <clears throat> for members and dedicants of the Crystal Silence League, which you can find at www.crystalsilenceleague.org. Uh, we are a prayer organization, and we dedicate prayer to all those in need. It was founded in uh, around 1917 by Mr. Claude Alexander Conlon, a magical adept, for the purpose of sending out prayer and affirmation for all those in need. And when he passed into the silence around 1954, the League went with him until magical adepts of Missionary Independent Spiritual Church brought it back to life on the Internet around 2007, I believe. <clears throat> you got to pardon me. The air quality here is very bad. We have a air quality warning, and it's got everybody gasping for air. They, they said, don't go anywhere unless you have to. And, uh, you know, what does that mean? Is... You know, if you travel, is the air worse than if you just sit at home and gasp for air? Even my dog is going around sneezing and my cat's going around sneezing. You know, so if the animals are sneezing and gasping for air, think about us poor humans. So, and the dog will get right on you and sneeze. You know, she'll come right up in your face and go, you!" and, you know, dog snot gets all over you, sprayed with dog snot. The cat at least has the common courtesy and decency to keep a distance when he sneezes it's it's a it's a disgrace so anyway you see i walk this tight rope up here folks i walk a fine line it doesn't take much to blow me off on a tangent believe me so anyway um we uh find that we have a prayer page and we get lots of prayers we get over 200 a week and i'll, I'll tell you exactly how it is i went today to uh, mark my 40 prayers uh i look over about 40 prayers and select a few for uh reading aloud on our show every week and I prayed for 40 people and I refreshed the page and there were 10 more prayers between the time I prayed and the time I refreshed the page which was probably between the first time I refreshed the page and the second time may have been 10 minutes we got 40 more prayers on that page we're a very active organization uh, we're also, I'm in the process of constructing a shrine, the Crystal Silence Shrine, here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the headquarters of the Crystal Silence League will move to Knoxville, Tennessee in my Crystal Silence Shrine, which is exciting news. I have a, the Black Hawk Power Shrine ready to open as a, um, as a wing of the um, Divine Harmony Spiritual Church. And the Crystal Silence Shrine will be... The uh, the other wing, I have an east wing and a west wing that I'm opening up to Divine Harmony Spiritual Church. There'll, there'll be the apse, is the apses, the apsi of the uh, the main uh, church. The church will have two wings, which is fairly exciting news. And I'll have pictures of those up in uh, independent websites for the Black Hawk Power Shrine and the Crystal Silence Shrine. So that's that's news there. So. We do have a crystal for tonight. Our uh, crystal is the uh, the tabular quartz. And the reason I selected this tonight is because the tabular quartz um, has lots of mean lots of meanings and lots of uses. And like all quartz, uh, it can transform and transmit and uh, store energy. It can also take uh, it can also uh, take on the characteristics of any other stone. Um, <clears throat> and tabular quartz looks like a table. It's wider than it is thick. It's usually rectangular in shape and um, has a double point. Uh, sometimes it's rectangular. Uh, most of the time it's rectangular. Uh, it's in a um, it looks like a little table, and you can set other stones on it. That's why it's very convenient. And it will absorb their energy, and uh, it it helps in communication of all sorts. It's a bridge between the past and the present, and uh, it, uh, it it acts as a bridge between uh, the root chakra and the crown chakra. So that's very good. But in specific interest to us, 
is that it can bridge the current life to past lives. If you're exploring past lives and you're trying to access memories or issues or any connection, uh, tabular quartz is very, very good for that. And, of course, being quartz, it's silicate, it's very solid, very um, hard. You can drop it in water and make an elixir of it directly, leave it in the sun, leave it in the moon, um, remove the stone, put a few drops of brandy in your water and use it for magical purposes, anoint your third eye with it, um, <clears throat> use it for spell casting or your altar work. Uh, tabular quartz, inexpensive, uh, very easy to find. It's just the shape of the quartz that makes it tabular. It's flat, long, and narrow. It looks like a little tabletop. And sometimes it might have multiple points sticking out, but you want the flat one. All right. Um, if we go to our uh, prayer page, if you go to the Crystal Silence League, www.crystalsilenceleague.org, you see that we have many, many prayers. And... Um, I never identify these by name. We always keep anonymity in the Crystal Silence League. We um, we always identify them by number alone. So why don't we start? We have prayer ID 7326. I want to adjust my microphone so I can get closer to the screen here. I have a real broadcast microphone. It's on an arm and has a windscreen and everything. My son gave me this for uh, Christmas one year. <clears throat> Prayer ID 73266, who says, I'm pregnant with my mother's granddaughter. I'm looking for reconciliation between me and my mother-in-law. I'm pregnant with her granddaughter. May she open her heart and mind to the realization that if she holds her grudge, she'll lose the chance to be a part in her granddaughter's life. And it's a sad thing when there's grudges in families. May they be healing. Amen. And prayer ID 73265, please protect me from all danger or taketh me away. Dear Jesus and Saint Maria, I pray for your holy and powerful protection of me. Taketh my life with you instead, so that I will suffer no more hatred, greed, abuse, nor violence from anyone visible or invisible to me. Amen. Prayer ID 73263. Who's praying for a loved one, a total healing from anxiety, depression, full body, body healing for Mr. P. Amen. Prayer ID 73262, who says, urgent prayers for lungs, head, congestion to fully clear miracle time. Amen. I second that. I'm so st stuffed up and congested. Help me with that miracle, too. Prayer ID, is there a saint for uh, sinuses and lungs? If so, um, drop into our chat room and tell me. Prayer ID 73261. Oh, we just read that one. Uh, 73260. It says, Lord, help me be patient with my daughter. May she continue to develop a healthy body and mind and help me to see that she is developing wonderfully and equally. Do not let her... Do not do not let me pressure her with expectations. Let her be her own self. Please, Lord, give me give her the same opportunities as other children and give me faith that all will be well, O oh Lord. Today I start my novena to Saint Jude for all the children of our world. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Prayer ID seven three two five nine who says, protect me from drug use, using weed and alcohol. Protect me from people who use and sell drugs. Amen. And says, break me up with B, who uses and sells drugs. Help me to move on. Keep me busy with a new life and away from her. I no longer want to think about her, and I forgive her for causing me pain. Lord, please forgive me for my sins and causing myself pain. Help, help, help me, help me make better choices. Amen. <coughs> Prayer ID 73258. My best friend lost her job today, and she's currently pregnant due in a couple of months. Who would fire a pregnant woman? I pray that she finds employment or some type of way to cope with her situation and finances until she's working again in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And prayer ID 73256. Please help me heal from the violent domestic abuse I was the victim of. In the name of my higher self, I can't stand this depression. 
and sadness anymore. Help me cope with the consequences of all this. Amen. Prayer ID 73255. Please pray for financial blessings for myself so I can repair my house. Thank you. She also prays for parents to achieve financial stability soon because they're barely scraping by. Thank you and amen. We have prayer ID 73252 who prays, Father in heaven, I pray that I be healed of my broken heart, that I learn forgiveness and how to release this pain and trust my husband. Father, please bless me with my forever job, that they may see my worth and not be jealous, envious, or hateful about worldly things that I may have. They love me and never want to let me go as an asset. Father, bless my husband. I pray for his strength to remain faithful and follow the good path through Jesus' name. Amen. And didn't you know that when she prayed for forgiveness and to trust her husband that he was a dog and cheated on her? Didn't you just know that? Prayer ID 73251. Please pray for my dear friends E, A, and F, B, so that they'll succeed financially for their family. May the good Lord shower them with unlimited financial blessings all the time. And prayer ID 73248. God, in the name of Jesus, please bless me with the best job I've ever had in my life. This job will pay more than any job I've ever had. I will love this job. The people on and at the place of employment will love me. And I shall keep this job forever and be able to bless others. I shall be happy no matter what for the rest of my life. Thank you, Lord, for answering my prayers. Amen. And let's have one more. Prayer ID 73247. Please pray that a good man comes into my life that will be a perfect partner for me. Someone who is well-established, funny, honest, loving, faithful, and kind. I seem to not have the best luck in the relationship area. Thank you for taking time to pray for me. Many blessings sent your way. Amen. Let's have a moment of silent prayer and meditation for all those in need of comfort and support and affirmation. Amen. Well, tonight we're exploring the world of um, <clears throat> the afterlife. We're looking at evidence of survival. And by survival, I don't mean you know, being stranded on an island with a, with a knife and a <clears throat> couple of sticks to rub together. I'm talking about survival of consciousness after the breakup of the body, after death. Is there some part of us that survive? And for many people, this is a question of belief. 
And people say, well, of course. Uh, of course there is. And for many people, it's a question of saying there's no proof. And, uh, you know, I, re- I refer to materialists or atheists who say, nah, when you die, it's it. You know, it's like a candle going out. Um, so is there scientific support of this? And um, we believe that there has been sufficient some of us believe there's been sufficient scientific support of this. We looked at the mediumship of Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Leonard that was rigorously studied and investigated by scientific members of the Society for Psychical Research. And again, that literature is there for you to study for yourself, hundreds of settings. And again, it goes not just that, but uh, Professor William Crooks and many other scientists studying dozens and dozens of mediums. Um, the study of spirit mediums continues to this day. There's um, a professor I worked with, Dr. Gary Schwartz. There's a book called The Afterlife Experiments. And in that, I will tell you, and I'll try to make it brief, but uh, a group of people knowledgeable of uh, mediumship and also uh, uh, magician methods were brought together along with paranormalists and uh, psychics, <clears throat> and I was among that number. Uh, there was me and uh, my partner, uh, whose name was Sam Hawley, and he was a fellow I toured with. I used to do uh, – uh, uh, Sam Hawley and I used to do a two-person hypnosis show together. We, t- we worked colleges and other venues. Um, there's uh, another fellow who was a uh, – he's a very famous mentalist. I won't name his name, but he, he's very famous. Uh, there were two other mentalists, uh, Lloyd Auerbach, who is a professor of parapsychology at um, uh, is it John Kennedy University, I think, JFK University uh, on the West Coast. He's also an author of many excellent books on uh, parapsychology, on the paranormal, including uh, the Ghost, uh, Ghost Hunter's Handbook, uh, which is very good if you're going to investigate hauntings. And he's got uh, some videos on some haunting investigations that he's done. He's the uh, head of the uh, OPI, the Office of Paranormal Investigation, uh, of which I, at one time, and probably still am, an agent, a card-carrying agent. And Dr. Marcello Truzzi, who was the founder of PSYCOP before they kicked him off, and the director of uh, of SAR, the Center um, for the Study of Anomalous study the Center for Scientific Anomalies Research and author of many great books, uh, one of which was The Blue Sense, which studied psychic detectives. Uh, Dr. Mar- Dr. Uh, Trucci was very, he was a very good friend of mine. I miss Marcello dreadfully. Uh, was a, uh, a harsh critic of <clears throat> pseudo-skeptics, such as James Randi and Michael Shermer and people like this, and a avid investigator of the paranormal, a very open-minded and fair gentleman. And uh, uh, Dr. Ray Hyman, who many people may know from Psychop, he's a statistician. He's a psychologist, but he's a statistician. And we were there to help set up protocols to test spirit mediums. Now, Dr. Schwartz has already tested many spirit mediums this time, and we looked at his data, and a more divided panel you would never see. Um, The mentalist said he was unimpressed. I and my partner were very impressed at the results of some of the mediums. John Edward was one of them, by the way, um, who produced moderately impressive data, but the most impressive data were by some spirit mediums that many of you may never heard. There was a guy named George Anderson, uh, Laurie Campbell was one who was tested. Rosemary Altia was one. And there were a few others that are not necessarily very famous. George George Anderson was a spirit medium from Camp Chesterfield, Indiana. And they, some of them gave remarkable readings and double-blind tested. And Dr. Schwartz uh, is a scientist. He's uh, a remarkable man, uh, physics and uh, psychology degrees together from Harvard. So he knew about science. Well, we, uh, 
I'll, I'll tell you that uh, two of the mentalists were there just to learn techniques from the mediums. They were convinced they were cheating, and they wanted to learn techniques that they could use in their show. And um, one of the mentalists was there to showboat. He was bragging about how much he knew, how much more he knew than the rest of us. And uh, I, I got very tired of him quickly. And I told Gary Schwartz, I said, um, I will tell you that um, I don't think he knows as much as he says he does. He says he can replicate what these mediums does. Ask him to do a reading because I don't think he can. He says he can. He says he can, he can do readings uh, even though he's not a psychic. He says he can replicate readings. Ask him to do so. And of course, Dr. Schwartz asked him to do so. And he said, well, I don't have to prove anything to you. And I said, and, and I said, come on, man, do a reading for us. You know, you said that these mediums aren't impressing you, that uh, uh, that you can do the same thing. And he started boasting of his uh, his fame and how he'd be remembered in history. And I said, just come on, man, just do a reading for us. And then he attempted a reading on Dr. Schwartz that was a miserable failure, and he got mad and left. So that was so much for him. Um, uh, Dr. Hyman told me several lies during the course of it um, and then published a totally fake report about what happened there. Lost all credibility with me and everyone there. Um, and I had volunteered to work with the spirit mediums. Uh, I said I would love to work with them and learn more about communication with spirits. And there was some pursuit in that. Uh, Dr. Schwartz, though, went on a campaign to try to convince the skeptics that there was something to it. And he went on a tour to do this very thing <clears throat> and went on to write some more books and do some more research. Um, so the investigation of spirit mediums continues. The uh, scientific evidence mounts up in terms of uh, that this happened, and I'll tell you that there are still websites where skeptics debate Dr. Schwartz's experiments and said, and, and they'll tell you that there was sensory leakage, that the spirit mediums could have been um, reading body language and stuff. And I, I tried to engage him. I said, no, I was there, and none of that could have happened. And they said, well, Dr. Hyman says this, and I said, Dr. Hyman left. He wasn't there during the experiments. So, well, Ray Hyman said, and Ray Hyman said this, and Ray Hyman said, I said, no, I was there. Do you understand? I was there. And they'd argued with me and uh, would tell me all these theories. And I said, we tested for those. We prevented those. That's, that was our role to be there. And they would argue with me. So the bias of the disbeliever and the bias of the true believer, often the true believer, too, will often get in the way of a of research. So it's very important that when research is done, it be done with objectivity. And that's, that's very hard. Uh, I, I'll tell you that there's uh, excellent research on, um, on how bias affects us. Most of us go through the day without really thinking about our decisions. We usually operate from bias. We make decisions based on bias. And we make intuitive decisions based on bias, and often this serves us well. But you know, if we if we had to stop and ponder over every decision, we wouldn't get anything done. We make snap decisions, and th there are interesting tests that show us how our intuition works. I'm going to give you one right now. This is a very fun one. A bat and a ball, a baseball bat and a, ba and a baseball, cost a dollar ten, and you have to answer this very quickly. Don't stop and think about it. If you stop and think about it. It's no good. You have to answer it quickly using just the intuitive answer, the first answer that comes to mind. A baseball bat and a baseball cost a dollar ten. The baseball bat is a dollar more than the baseball. How much is, does the baseball cost? Now, answer. Now, don't think about it. Now, answer. Now, if you said the baseball cost a dime, that's a good answer. Your intuition gave you an elegant, simple answer that seems to make sense. It's also wrong because if the baseball is ten cents and the baseball bat's a dollar more, <clears throat> then the total cost is a dollar twenty. But the intuitive answer seems to make sense, right? And uh, but if you do the math on it, it's a dollar twenty. And 
So the correct answer is the baseball is a nickel. The baseball bat's a dollar more, so it's a dollar five. The, you know, so the, the math is a dollar ten. But I'm going to tell you that 85% of the people given this question on tests will say the baseball bat is a, is a dollar. You know, they'll say the, the baseball is ten cents. Cause, and there's a metronome. Answer, 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 answer. You're not allowed to think about it. You have to go to the next question including people entering Harvard and Princeton. Now, many people like me, given something like that, are suspicious at how easy the problem is and will stop and think about it. But if you're not given time to think about it, boom, intuitively. And the um, the problem with things like this is that we, we make decisions like this every day, including how we vote. And a lot of times our biases influence these decisions and a lot of times our biases are influenced by what we read, what we see on TV, what we're exposed to, like on Facebook and social media. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're on Facebook, about 90% of what you're seeing on Facebook is controlled by these biases and is utter garbage. Now, you're seeing stuff posted about Donald Trump. You're seeing posted about Hillary Clinton. You're seeing stuff posted um, – uh, about current events, and I I dislike Donald Trump. I dislike him for various reasons, but I don't like, dislike him for anything that's posted on Facebook because that is knee-jerk reaction fueled by people's biases. Nothing I read on Facebook contributes to my dislike of our current president. None of that. None of that is relevant. That is biased knee-jerk reaction. When Robert De Niro stood up and said, F Trump, that was a crass and callous and unskillful and unnecessary action, and all it did was fuel his fuel Donald Trump's supporters because he was saying, "If anyone who supports Donald Trump," that was not how you uh, debate. That's not how you win people over to your side. That was that was a dumb thing to do, but it stemmed from bias. So. When we are investigating things like the paranormal, we have to stop and reflect about how we do it. We have to look at the evidence, unbiased. We have to be unbiased about it. So we look at reincarnation, and a lot of times we think we associate that with uh, Eastern culture. We say, well, that's an Eastern culture. It really didn't hit the West until recently, but you'll find it. If you look at history in widely separated areas of the world, um, but, you know, if if you ask saw someone on the street and say reincarnation, they go, "Well, yeah, that's Hinduism, that's Buddhism." Well, maybe not. Um, um, you will find, in spite of the best efforts of uh, of missionaries, uh, you'll find it persists uh, in Eastern and Western Africa. Um, some native tribes in North America, Native Americans, have belief in reincarnation. <coughs> now, interestingly enough, in the African beliefs and in many Native American beliefs, reincarnation occurs in families. Family members come back. Uh, Eskimos, the, the Inuits, believed in it. The um, Many of the natives of the South Pacific believed in reincarnation. Uh, it's uh, a belief that runs through Japanese religions. Um in Lebanese culture, um, and in the Aborigines in Australia. Now, some of the early Christians um, believed in it before they were uh, destroyed. And um, at one time, you'll find in almost every Western civilization, reincarnation was toyed with. Uh, in ancient Greece, the Pythagoreans, uh, taught it. Um, Plato uh, discussed it. And uh, the Celts of Great Britain believed in, in reincarnation, and the Vikings believed in reincarnation. So um, up until the 6th century, there's writings in uh, early Christianity about reincarnation. Um, now, until the Council of Nice in 550 CE, uh, reincarnation was tolerated by by the church. Um, the um, 
So the idea of Christianity uh, was tolerated, never officially banned, but belief in reincarnation among Christians uh, became less popular after the Council of Nice. So uh, about the mid-20th century, reincarnation enters Western thought and becomes more and more popular. Um, so um, apparently a Gallup poll in 1968 shows that 18% of people in eight countries of Western Europe expressed a belief in reincarnation. So in a 1982 survey, 23% of American uh, respondents to the survey claimed to hold the belief, a belief in reincarnation, quite possibly because of the uh, increased uh, visibility of Buddhism. Um, so we see reincarnation now uh, as a well-known concept. So you can trace the belief in reincarnation to uh, India uh, and Tibet to about 1,000 years uh, before the Christian era. So it seems like in India, at least you can trace it to a common source. So it seems, but it seems very unlikely that uh, that the Inuits uh, and the Ganges acquired the belief in reincarnation from the same source, doesn't it? And that uh, the people living in the Caribbean and Australia received it from the same source. And even less likely that the belief in reincarnation spread from South Asia to West Africa and the Celtic British Islands into Central Australia. It seems less likely that, that they all came from a, a common source. So where did this come from? Uh, how did it occur? So <clears throat> um, at our most rational, if we go in our most rational and we reflect on this, you could argue that a belief in an afterlife um, is very comforting you know, to those left behind, that our loved ones are uh, safe and secure in some heaven somewhere, um, and that's sufficient. You know, that's enough. That belief that some part, you know, that some part of us lives on in a in a happy summerland, and that's sufficient to account for the widespread belief in an afterlife. But it doesn't seem really sufficient to account for the specific belief that someone will die and rebound <laughs> and come back into this world, uh, as opposed to simply spending eternity, uh, you know, in heaven somewhere, right? Uh, so there's there's got to be some additional uh, factor that would account for this uh, somewhat convoluted belief that you die, uh, you may spend some time in the afterlife, or you may immediately uh, come back and be reborn. That consciousness, that memories um, are retained somehow outside the body and then come back. So, um, um, so one possibility is that around the world there there are specific individuals uh, all over the world in different parts of the world through, throughout time, throughout history, who have claimed to remember having lived before. Now, that's all it would take, right? Throughout history, some people said, I remember having lived before. I, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, I was so-and-so. I was uh, doing this in this village and blah. That's all it would take. And people would say, yeah. Okay, so some people die and come back. That's really all it would take. So, and there are several ancient accounts of this. Uh, Pythagoras and Apollonius, uh, Apollonius of Tyana, who was an ancient uh, prophet. Do you know about it? If you, if you don't know about Apollonius of Tyana, look him up. Um, uh, both remembered having lived before and during the 16th century. Um, um, there was a translator, an Indian translator and poet, uh, claimed to remember a previous life. Um, there was uh, <clears throat> there was um, uh, people in uh, India, and uh, there was a Japanese boy um, uh, who was a um, who remembered being a farmer, um, and then um, all of a sudden, around the turn of the century. Six Burmese cases appeared in print. Now, between 1900 and 1960, a whole lot of cases, uh, mostly in India, were reported in newspapers, magazines, and journals. Now, um, 
some of these um, seem to be uh, of a single case and could be dismissed as superstition or imagination. But now we get to a very interesting time. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, professor of psychiatry, Dr. Ian Stevenson, appears on the scene. He hears these reports, and he begins to collect and systematically compare these accounts. And after finding 44 reasonably detailed accounts that could not easily be dismissed as fraudulent or superstition or made up, Stevenson published an article in 1960 that startled many of his readers. And many, many people uh, came to the conclusion that the cases provided very strong evidence uh, that reincarnation um, should require uh, uh, further research. Now, I'm going to tell you something that surprises a lot of people. Um, the uh, the arch skeptics love to quote Carl Sagan. They love to quote Carl Sagan. But Carl Sagan wrote in The Demon Haunted World that he felt there were three areas of the paranormal that he felt merited further research. He said the Gansfeld experiments of uh, that uh, <clears throat> that Daryl Bem and Ben Honerton carried on, able to receive pictures at, at, uh, from a distance, near-death experiences, and the uh, uh, the phenomena where people seem to have seem to have memories from a previous life, reincarnation. That's Carl Sagan. Who said this? And this is a quote that you don't hear much from the uh, arch skeptics. They don't quote that. They love to quote his quoting uh, William James' um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. They don't like to quote that he said reincarnation should uh, deserves more study. That um, remote viewing, which is basically clairvoyance, deserves more study. That near death experience deserves more study. You, you never hear them quote that, but there it is in Demon Haunted World. So, um, so Stevenson's waiting around for some fresh reports. Um, and in 1961, he learns about a new case in India, and he gets a research grant. He, off he goes to Indian, India. So nothing really prepared him for what was going to happen. Uh, there's an abundance of uh, material in India. Claims come right and, right and left. Uh, during his first five weeks in India, he, he learns of uh, somewhere between 25 and 50 cases of children remembering past lives. So since 1961 to present, Ian Stevenson and his colleagues have investigated, I'm not exaggerating, over 3,000 cases, alleged past life memories from children. So in 1966, he publishes a book called 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation and followed that up with many other books. Uh, most of them are um, uh, compiled uh, in an omnibus, which you can get on Kindle if you like. Um, so uh, the... Uh, Resurgence of interest in America and in the West, in large part due to Dr. Stevenson's uh, work, which is very controversial. You know, uh, many uh, many of the skeptics uh, like to try to tear it down, but they they really can't. Uh, if you read their objections and then actually read his book, you find that he wrote he he brought up the objections himself and dismissed all the cases that didn't um, qualify or meet the the objections that he raised. So. Um, he uh, employed research methods that have been used by lawyers and historians and scientists for centuries. So his primary method was to interview the subject and all the firsthand witnesses. He'd interrogate them. If you read these books, he, he interrogated these people looking for, uh, you know, trying to crack them. Um, so um, <clears throat> uh, repeated interviews were usually held with uh, the most important informants to check the consistency of their reports, you know, like police do. They'll, they'll separate the witnesses and, and interview them separately to see if the reports are consistent. And as you know, if you've watched crime shows, 
if the stories are not consistent, if the stories are not true, they'll find inconsistencies. And if he found inconsistencies, he dismissed the case. You know, if mom and dad didn't agree on these stories, it, you know, if a kid told one story and mom and dad told another, um, then he said, no, this is no good. So um, so he would um, then talk to all the uh, informants, uh, neighbors, etc. cetera. Um, then he would um, study details um, that may have been previously missed. He'd locate and copy birth certificates, hospital records, and reports of post-mortem examinations even in order to substantiate all the details of the witnesses' accounts. Now, understand that in many cases, these were children that were born into small villages, impoverished families, and they were remembering details of people who lived uh, often 10 to 20 years before they were born in villages that were hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That they could not travel and get this information. Uh, so in a typical case, a child between the ages he, – he found patterns to this. And uh, <coughs> so in a typical case, a child between the ages of two and five would begin to speak of a previous life. And in some cases, um, it occurs just as soon as the child could speak, as soon as they could form coherent sentences. Um now, often it was triggered by some incident uh, or observation that's related to the memories. They'll see a musical instrument or hear a song or something, um, and the child will use adult expressions. You know, they'll speak um, like an adult and um, and behave in a way that's very strange for a child, but seems very appropriate for the previous personality. And the memories of the previous life usually begin to fade by age five or six and are usually gone by age eight. They just don't remember them anymore, although there have been exceptions, and the unusual behavior and uh, patterns of behavior uh, will persist for some time after the memories have disappeared, although those will also fade um, by adolescence. So um, let's look at one case. We'll look at one case uh, and, and go into it in detail. There is the case of uh, Corliss Chotkin, Jr. So um, this case started with a prediction by an elderly Tlingjet fisherman named Victor Vincent, who shortly before his death in Alaska told his niece, whose name was Irene, that he would be reborn as her son. And he showed Mrs. Chotkin two scars, one on his nose and one on his back, and told her that she would recognize him by his birthmarks on his body corresponding to these scars. Victor Vincent had become very fond of his niece and told her, I know I'll have a good home. So in the spring of 1946, Victor Vincent died. About 18 months later, on December of 1947, Mrs. Chotkin gave birth to a baby boy who was named after his father, Corliss Chotkin, Jr., and he had two birthmarks, which his mother said were exactly the same shape and location as the scars Victor Vincent had pointed to in the prediction of his rebirth. So one day, when Corliss was 13 months old, his mother was trying to get him to repeat his name. Instead, he replied petulantly, Don't you know me? I'm Cockledy. Victor Vincent had been in a full-blooded Tlinglet, and Cockledy had been his tribal name. When Mrs. Chotkin told one of her aunts about the boy's claim to be Cockledy, the older woman claimed that she had dreamed shortly before Corliss's birth that Victor Vincent was coming to live with the Chotkins. Mrs. Chotkin was sure that she had not been told her aunt about Victor Vincent's prediction before she heard about this dream. So a couple of years passed. Uh, Corliss, about two years old, and he was being uh, wheeled along the docks in his stroller by his mom. He recognized the stepdaughter of Victor Vincent, and he called out her name. They were not there to meet her, and neither Mrs. Chotkin uh, nor her other child had noticed the woman before. Uh, the infant, uh, Corliss, pointed her out. So Corliss uh, became excited and jumped up and down saying, there's my Susie, there's my Susie. And uh, Corliss hugged her and called her by her Tlinglet tribal name and kept repeating, my Susie, my Susie. And on another occasion, uh, when he was about two years old, uh, uh, Corliss recognized Victor's son, William, saying, there's William. There's William. There's my son. 
And on another, he recognized the widow of Victor Vincent. And on several other occasions, he recognized old friends of Victor Vincent. And all these recognitions occurred by the time Corliss was about six years old. So according to Corliss's mom, he'd also mentioned two events in uh, Victor Vincent's life that she didn't think he could have learned about normally. Also, he shared several behavioral traits with Victor Vincent. Uh, Corliss combed his hair in a similar manner. Uh, Corliss also stuttered, uh, like Vincent. Uh, they both were left-handed and both had a strong interest in boats and uh, being near the water. And Corliss showed a precocious aptitude for handling and repairing engines. Now, remember, this was a kid, right? And according to his mom, had taught himself to run boat engines without lessons. Now, after the age of nine or ten or so, Corliss made fewer remarks about the previous life of Victor Vincent. And when Stevenson interviewed him in 1962 when he was 15, he said he remembered nothing about the previous life. And so by 1972, when Stevenson met him for the last time, Corliss had almost completely overcome his stuttering, although he did maintain his interest in boat engines. And this was one of the uh, cases that uh, Dr. Stevenson had followed for many years. Then we have the interesting case of the Pollock twins. Um, in May of 1957, a, uh, <clears throat> a drunken or crazed automobile driver deliberately drove her car onto the sidewalk of a street in England, and uh, she killed two sisters, um, Joanna and Jacqueline Pollock, who had been walking to church. Uh, Joanna was 11 years old and Jacqueline was six, and the driver had been um, distraught over losing her own, ch her own children during a divorce, and later she was confined to a mental asylum. So the parents were grieved, but uh, John Pollock believed that the girls had survived death and felt that they remained close to the family in spirit. So when his wife, Florence, became pregnant again uh, early the next year, he was confident that the two deceased sisters would be reborn as twins. Now, despite the opinion of the doctor that she'd have a single baby because he could only hear one heartbeat, in October of that year, she gave birth to twin girls. The story just gets better and better. So uh, <clears throat> John and Florence soon noticed that uh, Jennifer, the younger twin, had two birthmarks that corresponded in location and size to two marks on Jacqueline's body. One was on her forehead and matched a scar uh, from Jacqueline's forehead uh, that happened after an accident she had where she fell and cut herself. And the other was on her left side and matched a, um, a similar birthmark that had been on Jacqueline. So Jillian and Jennifer were a little slow in acquiring speech, and that they weren't really speaking very much until they were about three years old. And between the three ages of three and six, they made a few statements about the lives of their deceased sisters, and they recognized some objects that their deceased sisters had owned. And one incident concerned a couple of dolls that had been packed in a box and put in an attic after the deaths of Joanne and Jacqueline. Years later, that box was opened, and the dolls were given to Julian and Jennifer, who identified them as Mary and Susan, which were the names that the two dead girls had given them. Julian claimed the one that had belonged to Joanna, and Jennifer claimed the one that had belonged to Jacqueline. Uh, and uh, apparently when the twins were less than a year old, the family had moved away from the city where the uh, previous twins had died. And the twins didn't return there until the parents took them on a trip <clears throat> when they were about four. So according to their father, the twins immediately mentioned two places, a playground and a school, before they came into view. And John Pollock didn't believe that there was any normal way the girls could have required knowledge of the school or the park. And the behavior of the twins also corresponded in some respects with that of their deceased sisters. Uh, Jennifer was somewhat dependent on her older twin, Jillian, just as J Jacqueline been on her older sister, Joanna. And Jillian gave the general impression of being more mature than Jennifer, and like Joanna, was very generous and more interested in play acting with costumes than her sister. So Stevenson had first learned of this case through newspaper publicity that it received, and he met the family at their home in the fall of 1963. Now, critics very reasonably um, pointed out that since John Pollock believed in reincarnation, 
And since his deceased daughters, he believed that his deceased daughters would return to the family, whether in spirit or some other way, he may very well have talked about the dead girls in front of the twins. And when a journalist raised the objection that his prior belief in spiritual matters may have biased his observation and reports, he replied that if he had not believed in reincarnation and spiritual matters, he would not have noted and remembered the remarks and behavior of the twin daughters that most other uh, Western parents would have ignored or blown off as coincidence. So Stevenson remained in touch with the Pollock family until about 1985, and by the time Julian and Jennifer had grown up to become normal young women, and long before that, they'd completely forgotten the memories they had of other lives and were mildly skeptical about whether or not reincarnation did occur. <laughs> However, they didn't challenge or deny the testimony of their parents, and they participated in a television program that was almost entirely devoted to their case. So in these two cases, the children didn't repeat anything that their family members didn't already know. However, there are cases that are very different in that regard, where information was was uh, given by the children that neither the parents nor anyone around them did know, such as the Bishan Chand case. And we might have a little bit of time to discuss that one. Um, <clears throat> Bishan Kapoor was born in 1921 in India, and he gra- in a, uh, a village uh, Bareilly in India, and he gradually gained the power of speech. He began to speak of her previous life in uh, Philibet, a town approximately 50 kilometers east of Bareilly, and no one in Bishan's family knew anyone there. But by the time... Uh, Bishan Chand was five. He'd mentioned many details of a previous life. He claimed that his name had been Lakshmi Narain and that he had had an uncle named Har Naran. He also claimed that his father had been a wealthy landowner and frequently expressed dislike and contempt for his present family's poverty. His father earned the meager salary of a clerk working for the railroad and could only support his family with great difficulty. <clears throat> Bishan Chand reproached his father for his poverty. He tore his uh, cheap clothes off, and he demanded silk clothes, and he complained that even the servants in his previous life would not touch the food that they insisted he eat. So once, when uh, Bishan Chand was about five, his older sister caught him drinking brandy, which finally which he, ex- he finally explained the diminishing supply of brandy. It's a five-year-old kid drinking brandy. Uh, when the matter was discussed with him, he claimed that he was accustomed to drinking. <laughs> On another occasion, uh, he recommended that his father acquire a mistress. He claimed to have had a mistress in his previous life and boasted that he had once killed a man he had spotted coming out of her apartment. The influence of his wealthy family, he said, had enabled him to escape punishment. So Bishan Chan's father mentioned his son's statement to another man who in turn informed K.K. Sahay, a prominent and respected attorney, in Borelli. So Hay knew, became interested in this case and visited Bishan Chan's family in the summer of 26, writing down 21 statements the boy made about the life he claimed to remember. So he persuaded Bishan Chan's father to undertake a visit to Philbit to verify the boy's statement. And on August 1st, 1926, the two men took Bishan Chan and his older brother to Philbit. Well, guess what they found when they went to Philbit? Bishan Chan recognized various places and made additional statements about his previous life. So a crowd of curious onlookers gathered and followed them around, and someone produced old photographs of Lakshmi Narain and Har Narain. And in the presence of the crowd, Bishan Chan put his finger on the photograph of Har Narain and said, Here's Har Narain and here is I, which seemed to establish his identity as Lakshmi Narain, and although Har Narain turned out to be his father, not his uncle. And we'll come back next week and pick up the curious case of Bishan Chan and children that remember past lives. Won't you come back with us? And won't you come back and talk to us? And we will go into this and perhaps we'll uh, explore your past lives. I'll see you then. Farewell, farewell.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.